Good morning. Thank you so much as a congregation for the invitation to come and to be with you this week. I've been looking forward to this meeting. I've been looking forward to this series of lessons. I hope, as I said in our Bible class hour, that this week I can help challenge all of us to deeper commitment to a closer relationship with Jesus Christ as we think about living a crucified life. You know, I preach in Katy, Texas, as was mentioned. There are all kinds of connections between the church here and the church in Katy. Uh, members who have been from here and gone there and come back, and some, uh, the Ivanhoe's, for example, uh, have done that. Uh, Randy and Sandy Jones, I know, worshiped with you for a number of years. And I know there are a lot of others that, that my memory fails me right now to consider. But thank you so much for the good work that you're doing here in Midland. Thank you for your kindness and your support to Mike and Cherie and to Adam and Julie. We're thankful for the work that they're doing as ministers of the gospel in this place. When it comes to the cross, we need to remember who it was that was crucified. If you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 27, just leave it there, because the lesson today is going to come from that particular chapter. Seems like everybody's upset these days. Everybody's indignant. My kids are teenagers, 15 and 13, and they have picked up the word triggered. And if I say something, it's, they're, they're being funny about it, but if I say something that, um, that, that offends them, like you need to come unload the dishwasher, something along those lines, I've been triggered, Dad. They're indignant. They're upset. There are some things that really ought to upset us. There are a lot of things that really don't make a hill of beans difference. A lot of things that people get upset about around us in our society and our culture. But there are some things that really ought to cause us to stop and to reflect on what's going on. And when we read Matthew chapter 27 and Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Jesus, it is the longest account of the crucifixion out of all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read Matthew's account, what's amazing is that Matthew presents Jesus as the king, the king on a cross. As a matter of fact, Matthew is all about the king and his kingdom. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2 begins with wise men coming and saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And Matthew concludes with a sign, an inscription over Jesus' cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Matthew 27 and verse 37. He's a king. And when you stop and think about what we do with kings, we give kings the very best of everything. The very best we possibly could give them is what we give kings. All right, I'm using this and I'm thinking that's what I need to do. There we go. All right. Are you doing that or am I? Excellent. You guys have so much different technology. You know, Jesus only had to get in a boat and go out away from the shore and preach his sermons. And I've got all kinds of wires and microphones and you know, video, visual aids. Anyway, all right, I digress. Jesus is the king. When we give kings the very best of everything, we give them the very best living quarters, don't we? We give them palaces like what the French have given to their kings before the French Revolution. We also give, give our kings crowns and scepters. And we want them to have the very best clothing, the very best decoration, that which shows that they are royalty, that they are majestic, that they are the very epitome of, of everything that's glorious. 
When we give things to kings, we give them, for example, the very best transportation. We give them golden carriages. And we can only imagine what it would be like. Kings don't walk anywhere. They don't use their own two feet to get from place to place. Kings are carried. And when you think about what we do for kings, we even get people out of the way. We make everybody stop and pay attention. Here comes the king. Here comes the royal one. Here comes the person that everybody needs to stop and revere and reflect upon. That's what we do with kings. When Jesus goes to the cross in the book of Matthew, Matthew presents Jesus as the king, and he does so ironically. And what I mean by that is, nobody in the crucifixion process really fully understood what was happening. They thought that they were just putting to death an itinerant Jewish rabbi. They thought that they were just putting to death someone that would appease, Pilate thought, the Jewish mob. They thought that the person that they were crucifying was just an ordinary man. And what Matthew does is masterful. It's inspiration. It's God's word. Matthew presents Jesus as the king, even in his crucifixion. And so as we look at the account that Matthew presents of the crucifixion this morning, I'd like for us to notice, first of all, as you break this down into sections, the derision of the soldiers... The scripture was just read that Pilate, when he saw that he could not prevail against the crowds, he scourged Jesus and delivered him up to be crucified. And the very next thing that happens in verse 27 of Matthew 27 is this. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. That was where the soldiers lived. That was their barracks. That was where they had their, um, their training and things like that. Well, they took Jesus with them into the praetorium, and they gathered the whole garrison around him. Now think about it. This was early in the morning. And the soldiers, they're, they're getting out of bed, getting ready for their day. And all of a sudden, here comes some soldiers, and they're bringing this Jewish man in among. And they say, hey, everybody, come gather around, come gather around. We've got, a, we've got a man who's a prisoner being delivered to be crucified. And look at what the soldiers do. You know, Matthew could have focused on a lot of details about the cross and about the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. But here's what Matthew chooses to bring out. In verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then it says in verse 29, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and they bowed their knees before him and they mocked him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! Can you see that in your mind? Can you see the soldiers doing that? And they're laughing and they're snickering and they're thinking this is a lot of fun. This is really funny. They've put this crown of thorns on somebody's head and they've given him a reed and they've given him a robe and they're, they're kind of subtly mocking the Jews in general because they really despised the Jewish people. The whole reason there was a garrison there in Jerusalem in the first place was because they didn't trust the Jews to maintain order. They didn't trust the Jews to continue to be loyal to Rome. And so they had to go to a place like Jerusalem, and they had to live next to the temple, and they had to be there and, and carry out their soldierly duties. They would have rather probably a lot of those soldiers been out fighting for glory for Rome, would have been rather somewhere else, but they had to stand and babysit these Jewish people. And so here comes this individual that claims to be their king. And the soldiers bring out a robe and they bring out a crown of thorns and they bring out a, a stick that they find and they put it in his hand. And think about Jesus and all this. 
He accepted the robe. He accepted the crown. He held on to the stick that they gave to him. And they bowed their knees and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew's presenting him as a king. And he's doing it ironically. They don't really know who it is that they're spitting on. They don't really know or care who it is that they're mocking. This is the way they treat him. Matthew goes on as he writes, and look at verse 31. The scripture says, They spat on him, verse 30. They took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Matthew doesn't stop presenting him as the king. Look, if you would, in verse 29, they confess him, Hail, King of the Jews. And as you continue, they talk about service. What do we do for kings? If a king is going to travel somewhere, we make sure that we roll out the red carpet. We make sure that the king is someone that that we present with, with great dignity. As they came out, verse 32, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. He didn't volunteer. He didn't say, hey, I want to help the king bear his cross. No, it says in verse 32, they compelled him. Those Roman soldiers just found a random guy named Simon and said, you're going to carry this prisoner's cross. Then it says in verse 33, they come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull. They gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. I've heard people say that maybe this was some kind of a narcotic and maybe this was something as an act of mercy that they did for prisoners. I rather believe that as you read Matthew's account and you look at what Matthew's doing, he's saying they're offering something to him. They're mocking him. Just like you would bring something to the king and you'd say, here, your majesty, drink this. They're doing this for Jesus. And they're mocking him. It says... They sat down, divided his garments, and they put him on the cross, and they put over his head, verse 37, the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What had Jesus ever done to them? What did he do that deserved any of this? Had he, had he raised an insurrection against Caesar? Had he mocked and assaulted the soldiers of Rome? What had he done? What had he done that they would treat someone so cruelly? As you look at accounts of the cross, it is amazing how hard human hearts can be. It is amazing how calloused individuals can be. How violent they can be. And especially when a mob kind of takes over. Everybody starts doing one thing and everybody starts acting a certain way and it just becomes the thing to do. And we don't stop and think about the morality or the rightness or wrongness of what we're doing. We just do it. People are like that. And Matthew's saying, ironically, here's the king and he's wearing a robe and he's wearing a crown and he's got his scepter. And they're bowing and they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And brothers and sisters and friends, I want you to know something. One day, those very same soldiers who bowed their knees before him and spat on him and mocked him, they're going to bow their knees before him once again. There is coming a day when all of us in this room will bow our knees before him. Whether you serve him or not, whether you love him or not, you will bow your knee because he really is the king. How we need as Christians, how we need as human beings, to reflect on the greatness of Jesus and our need to submit to him, the derision of the soldiers.
But notice that what Matthew does continuing is he talks about the mockery of those who were around. The derision of the soldiers is bad enough. The way that they treated him and the way that they mocked him and the fact that he accepted all of this because this was his mission, as we talked about in Bible class. His mission was to go to Jerusalem, to go to the cross, and then to go to the nations, remember? And he's saying to you and me, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. I've got a mission. I want to go to the nations, and I want to save people from their sins. This is the price he paid. But as you look at what Matthew continues with, beginning in verse 39, the blasphemies of the crowd. The word blaspheme means to speak against. Literally, that's what it means. To speak against. And the crowd, as they watched Jesus being crucified, they were used to crucifixions. And I don't know, maybe you've seen it in movies when somebody, for example, in, in old middle, uh, middle Ages, England or somewhere, when, when they're being hanged or they're being stoned or whatever, the crowds always would kind of gather around and there'd be kind of a, a spectacle. And people would want to come and they'd, kind of, they, they'd want to watch a hanging. They'd want to watch an execution. And people would bring their kids, and this was almost kind of like a celebratory atmosphere. And as you look at what happens around the cross, people somewhat did that. The Bible mentions that there were passers-by. There are there different people who mock and blaspheme Jesus while he's on the cross. It mentions different categories, a variety of mockers. It says, for example, that some of the people that mocked him were passing by. After all, it was the Passover. It was a time when a lot of people were coming to Jerusalem and they were, they were going for the feast and this was a reason for them to be in town. And as they came into town, they saw three crosses and they saw two criminals, one on either side, and right in the middle they saw this cross and it said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And so some of the passers-by thought, I'm going, to, I'm going to stop and I've got some things to say to him. I've got some things to say about him. Not only were there passers-by, but the Bible says that the rulers and the priests... Didn't they have anything better to do? Didn't they have anything that they were in responsibility that they were supposed to be fulfilling? No, it says in verse 41 that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came out to watch the crucifixion. This wasn't as if it was just right across the street from the temple. They had to go out to this place called Golgotha. They had to travel there. They had to make a specific journey. And they did it so that they could mock and blaspheme the Savior. And not only the rulers and the priests... Matthew says that even the thieves, verse 44, who were crucified with him, reviled him. Everybody was against him. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The Bible indicates that the longer we stand against sin, the more, the more Satan wants to tempt us. And the Bible indicates that it's kind of like a wind. You know, the wind blows against us just a little bit, and some of us give in. If temptation, just a little bit of temptation comes, we give in. And sometimes the wind gets harder and stronger and stronger. And I don't know if you've ever been maybe in a hurricane. Or you've ever been in one of those machines at the, you know, the kids' restaurants that have a hurricane-force wind. And here's what an 80-mile wind feels like. You kind of have to struggle to stand up straight. You know what happened at the cross, brothers and sisters and friends? What happened at the cross is that the winds of temptation blew as mightily against Jesus Christ as anybody who's ever lived. He endured Satan's best shot. He took 
the hardest brunt of temptation that anyone has ever faced. I mean, think about what he's doing. He's dying for the sins of humanity, and everybody is mocking him. Oh, but Matthew's not done. Listen to what they say. Because even though these passers-by, and even though these chief priests and elders, and even though these thieves don't really understand fully what's happening, Matthew does. And he brings out their words in an ironic way. Who is Jesus? You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Verse 40. Who is Jesus? He's the builder of the temple. You know what Jesus did when he died? He said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He was speaking of the temple of his body, John says. He's the builder of the temple. The Bible says that the church is the temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Bible says that each of us individually is the temple, the dwelling place of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Who is Jesus? He is the builder of the temple, and the cross was the price he paid to do that. Who is Jesus? Verse 40, verse 43. If you are the Son of God, and when the Jews talked about the Son of God, they weren't just saying that he was born of a virgin. They weren't just talking about the miraculous conception of Jesus. When they called Jesus the Son of God, they were talking about his royalty. They were thinking about Psalm chapter 2, where the psalmist talked about the anointed one that God was going to appoint to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. That is the context of what the Son of God meant to the Jews. They mocked him on the cross. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. The Bible says that they mocked him about being the one who saved others but couldn't save himself. And Matthew brings out those words as well. He is the Savior of others, but not himself. When we think about living a crucified life, and we think about following him, and we think about participating in and sharing in his mission to go to the nations and to proclaim the greatness and the mercy and the glory of God, when we think about that, we need to remember Jesus saved others, but not himself. Take up your cross and follow me. Who is Jesus? He is the King of Israel, verse 42. That's what the inscription said. Who is Jesus? He is the one who trusts in God. He trusts in God. Let God save him if he will have him, verse 43. Who is Jesus? He is the one whom God would not deliver, verse 43. What's Matthew doing? He's showing us our king. He's showing us the fulfillment of the mission. He's showing us the greatness of Jesus in the indignity and the mockery that he endured. Continuing, as you look at Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Jesus, you find the wonders of that day that are brought out. You know, at some point, everything that can be said is going to be said, but then beginning in verse 45, God started to speak. God had some things to say. There were some wonders that took place. You know, when an ordinary person passes away, the world just kind of goes right on in most cases. It makes a ripple with our friends and our loved ones and the people that, that associated with us, but other people that are not our acquaintances, the world just goes right on. Not so with Jesus. When he was crucified, God saw to it that everybody understood something momentous was happening. Something amazing was taking place. The wonder of the darkness. Beginning in verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. 
Don't you think that would have caused some people to stop and reflect? Why is it dark? It's the middle of the day. Why is the sun refusing to shine? What's happening? The wonder of the statement that Jesus makes in verse 46. Jesus cries out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know why that's a wonder? Because he's quoting from Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And the people that recognized their Old Testament and knew about the Old Testament, they knew that was a messianic psalm. They knew that was a psalm that prophesied something about the king. But they missed it. They, instead of recognizing what he was saying, they showed their hardness of heart. Verses 47 through 49. Listen, this man is calling for Elijah. Back in the Old Testament, the prophets said that Elijah was going to come before the Messiah did. The prophets promised that Elijah would prepare the way for the Messiah, that he would make his way straight. And it's an extra dig at Jesus for them to say. That's why Matthew tells you literally what he said, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. That's why he translates it for you or gives you the original sound of what Jesus said. Because it helps us to understand why the people said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. That's funny. It's, it's funny because here he is dying, and he's not coming down from that cross. He's going to give his life up in just a minute, and he's still calling for Elijah to come and save him. He's calling for Elijah to come and preach and to make his way straight. Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, that Elijah had already come. In fact, he said that it was John the baptizer. He is the Elijah who is to come. But the hardness of people's hearts is a wonder. When you look at the cross and look at what Matthew teaches us about it, it was Jesus' choice to die. It's amazing that Jesus is the only human being who ever chose to be born. I didn't, did you? I was just born. Jesus chose, and Jesus chose to die. He said, no one takes my life from me, I give it willingly. And the Bible indicates in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, that he yielded up his spirit. He chose. The wonders of that day continue as you read Matthew's account. The veil of the temple at the moment of his death was torn into, not from bottom to top, as if somebody had actually done that from some kind of mysterious way, but from top to bottom. This was a divine intervention. This was a divine miracle. Continuing, Matthew says there was an earthquake when he died. Verse 51, the earthquake and the rocks were split. The Bible says when Jesus died, there were resurrections that took place. Verse 52, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There was an earthquake. There was a rending of the veil. There were resurrections that took place. And even the Gentiles who were there, the soldiers at the cross, who had no doubt been very very ambitious and, and involved in mocking him previously, they had a change of heart. Verse 54, The centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. They feared greatly and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. What's Matthew doing? He's showing you the king. He's showing you how the king was treated. 
I want to spend just a few moments reflecting on what we've read this morning and what we've studied from Matthew's account. Four reflections that all of us need to spend time thinking about as we think about our study this week of living a crucified life. Reflection number one is this. When we see how the king was treated and we really contemplate what happened that day, we're filled with unspeakable emotion. Years ago, I wrote a bulletin article. I like to make top ten lists. I think people kind of, I don't know, they like a list for whatever reason. And so I made a top ten list of Bible days I would like to have seen. Have you ever thought about that question? What days, if you could get in a time machine and go back, what days would you like to be present for? On my list were things like, I wanted to see the day that David killed Goliath. That'd be really neat, wouldn't it? I wanted to see Boaz and Ruth's wedding. That had to have been a beautiful thing. After all the heartache and pain that Ruth and Naomi had been through, to see those two and the happiness and the joy of that day. For years I've wrestled with this and I didn't put it in my article. If I could get in a time machine and go back to the cross, would I do it? I don't know. Would you? I think it helps to think about the fact that the soldiers, the centurions, the the elders and the scribes, and even the disciples, none of them really understood fully what was happening at the cross in the moment. Nobody did. It wasn't until the resurrection, and it wasn't until the preaching of the gospel, that people fully grasped that atonement was being made for our sins that, that a new way into a relationship with God was being created and, and that oneness and access to God and those kinds of things were being made available. Nobody understood that in the moment. But if I or you were to get in a time machine and go back and witness that event, we, we have that information. We know that. And so there's a part of me that says... Yes, very much. I would like to go back and I would like to witness what my Savior did for me. But there's another part of me that says, you know what? I'm the reason he was doing that. I'm the reason he held on to the scepter. And I'm the reason that he wore the crown of thorns. And I'm the reason that he listened to all those people say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. I'm the reason why he did that. And I don't know that I would want to go and stand and watch that happen, would you? It makes us emotional when we stop and contemplate what Jesus did for us. Not only that, we are reminded of our own unworthiness. When we think about what Jesus did at the cross, I speak as a preacher. I speak as somebody who wants more than anything to help people go to heaven. That's really what I want. That's what I want in my life. I want to be like Christ. But I'll tell you something. After we've done everything that's commanded us to do, Jesus said, we're just unprofitable servants. Luke chapter 17, verse 10. He did the work. He saved souls. And all I can do in my own limited ways is try to point people to Him. Take up your cross and follow me. Okay. I've given a lot for Jesus. I've served a lot. I've, I've sacrificed a lot. We're unprofitable servants. We need to remember that. 
You know, the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 20, that John the Baptist, when they asked him who he was, are you the Christ, they said. John the Baptist made a great confession. John the Baptist, it says, confessed and did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. Brothers and sisters and friends, there are some of us who need to confess that to ourselves and to others. I am not the Christ. People already have a Savior. The church already has a Savior. Because we can have far too high an opinion of ourselves and of our value to Christ and His kingdom if we're not careful. When we survey the wondrous cross, it ought to remind us of our unworthiness. Number three, reflection. When I see Jesus, who could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, Matthew chapter 26, and I believe it's verse 53, I want to love like he did. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And even though the cross was repulsive to him, the Bible says he despised the shame of the cross, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. He endured it because he wanted to glorify God. And Jesus loved us as himself. Those are the two great commandments, are they not? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus calls us as disciples to that kind of commitment ourselves. You want to follow me? You want to take up your cross? You want to deny yourself? You want to be with me? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I want to love like that. I'm a dim reflection of the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated at the cross. Reflection number four. When I see what happened to Jesus at the cross, it gives great encouragement. The Hebrews writer said it this way in Hebrews 12, verse 3. He said, consider him who endured, talking about Jesus on the cross. Consider him who endured, lest you be weary and discouraged in your souls, for you have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed. That's interesting if the Hebrews writer put it that way. He said, whatever you've suffered, John, for the sake of Christ... Whatever you've endured, whatever mistreatment you have faced, consider the one who endured it all first. You can take up your cross and follow him. He's a king. When you watch what happens to Jesus at the cross, when you think about the unfairness of it all, how can we do anything but say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. He did that for us. And then he turned right around and said, Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. What a Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you want to become a disciple of a Savior like that. The way that you do that is by participating with him in baptism. You believe, this is the one I'm going to follow. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. I believe all those things that they said about him in a mocking way at the cross. You repent. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to follow his way and I want to obey him. That's repentance. You confess, 
I believe that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. And then you participate with him in baptism. We are buried with Christ in baptism. We are raised to walk in newness of life with him at the point of baptism. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. If we can help you to obey the gospel this morning, if we can pray with you, if we can answer questions for you, whatever need you have, this is heaven's invitation at this time if you would make your way forward while together we stand and while we sing.